This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good news, it's Friday and it's break time, and uh, as usual, I'll be exploring what schools are for. After 40 years of teaching, I'm looking back over my career and I'm wondering what exactly I was doing. This morning, I'll be joining, I'll be joined rather, by Dennis Sherwood, who's the author of Missing the Mark, Why So Many of Our Exam Grades Are Wrong. Well, it's going to be an interesting discussion. This Please join us. Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And there we are, as the music subsides, uh, we can start the show. And uh, welcome once again. Oh, You've duh, been listening stop. to... T- stop that. Oh, dear. That was the end. That was the end music coming on. I forgot to put the repeat off. Well, this morning's guest, Dennis Sherwood, will be joining us shortly. And his book, Missing the Mark, says some pretty interesting things about, uh, about exams in this country. Oh, I think Dennis is just about to join us. I'm going to find out if he's there. Hello, Dennis. Hello, John. Hello, Dennis. Welcome to the show. My well, pleasure to be with you. Yes, and you're sounding nice and clear. I hope I hope you can hear me well. I can, indeed. Thank you very much. That's brilliant. I'm really very much looking forward to this discussion, not only because I've read your book, but also because uh, we talked a little bit earlier in the week and there was lots of fascinating things to talk about. Uh, but first of all, another reason I'm looking forward to this show is because when I first started teaching, just shy of 40 odd years before I retired, I started working in a sixth form college. And apart from a period of time teaching in the United States, every year I had GCSE results or I had A-level results or I had AS-level results. And only the last two summers have I not been anxiously awaiting results day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the things I felt all that time, I guess, I, I, mean, I had many thoughts about exam systems, but I probably wouldn't have said to a student, your results could be wrong. Now that, I mean, I, there, I mean, there were appeals and all sorts of things. We'll talk about this as the show goes on. Yeah. It's a pretty powerful word to use, Dennis, and your book's subtitle, Why So Many of Our School Exam Results Are Wrong, doesn't pull any punches, does it? Why, why, why do you use that word? Yeah, um, because grades are so important, lives and life destinies depend on them. So the difference between an A and a B or a six or a seven can be truly life changing. Now, once upon a time, there was an appeals process, which enabled you to get a remark. So let's imagine that we're back in say 2014 or 2015. Um, You had a student, you're a bit concerned, they got say, you know, a grade C on GCSE or A level, they were still graded C that time. And you're a bit concerned, you could appeal, and you would have a remark. Now, maybe the remark confirmed the C, in which case we'd say, okay, fair enough. But maybe that remark was changed to a B. Yeah. So the certificate would be reissued with a B. Yeah, yeah. Now, how would you describe that original C? Because the mark was changed as a result of an appeal and the grade as well, your only <laughs> conclusion must have been that the original C was wrong. You're absolutely right. Of course, that is the, just the only word you could have used. And I remember when we talked earlier in the week, I, 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 I misremembered in a way, but I remember about five to 10 years ago, it was commonplace in my sixth form to put any student who was just below a grade in for a kind of blanket appeal. And, uh, this, and we, got, we got grades changed. Uh, so it was just a school policy, but something changed in 2016. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you look at the data, and it's all been published by Ofqual, they publish their annual statistics, you will see up until the summer of 2016, uh, the number of the technical word is challenges, in fact, although, you know, everyone would say it's an appeal, which resulted in a remark, there was about a steady um, one in five, one in six 
probability that a script would be um, regraded and indeed upgraded. So that was, you know, a, a reasonable bet, if you like, if you want to put it like that, if you were willing to pay for it. Now, um, in 2016, Ofcore changed the rules for appeals. They introduced what's called the reasonableness test. And ever wow. since 2016, including this day, if you challenge a grade, you get what is called a review of marking. And a review of marking checks for compliance against the mark scheme. It doesn't give you a remark. So the number of remarks has really, really, really plummeted since 2016. And um, so Ofcall choked that off. Interesting. Yes, of course. Uh, Dennis, I'm just going to say about you, you are you are a, um, uh, a management consultant, but you've also, your background is physics degree from Cambridge, uh, an MPhil from Manchester, from um, an MPhil, sorry, from Module, Module of bio, Biophysics from yeah. the Yale University and a PhD. And it, that wouldn't have seemed to me to be a career that, that would have led you necessary to exams. So yeah, yeah. I know that you might want to just give us a <laughs> sketch outline of how you arrived here. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks, John. Um, yeah, I did all that sciencey stuff uh, way back when. Um, but then um, I went um, away from the academic world. I went into consulting. I joined the um, the Deloitte firm. I was a partner in the Deloitte firm for a dozen years. I then was an executive director at uh, Goldman Sachs. And then I set up my own consulting firm uh, about 20 years ago, specializing in um, primarily creativity, ideas, and innovation. And it was under that umbrella that I was invited in 2013 by Ofqual um, to um, document the various systems within which they operated. So that got me interested in schools and exams and how the systems worked. So it's gone on from there. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, yes. The, 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 well, if I were to play devil's advocate slightly to your point, yep. and say, I think if I was an exam board or the exam chief examiners or someone who Ofqual, what I'm going to say to you is uh, that, that we're highly experienced examiners. We've been doing this for years. We've got people, you know, rigorous process. We, we know what we're doing. And what you're doing is undermining students' trust in their grades. I mean, they, they celebrate their grades and you're saying they could be wrong. Um, yeah, um, indeed, students should celebrate their achievement. Um, the question is whether the grade on that certificate is a reliable indication of that achievement and the fact of the matter is they are not and the exam boards do a good thing but a key statement was made by the uh, chief regulator that's the senior official within the regulator off call just about two years ago in front of the education select committee mm. the statement that the chief regular made was Exam grades are reliable to one grade either way. That's an important statement. It's worth thinking about. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's a thing I'd have I'd have necessarily said to students. And I, I can recall. I mean, looking back on it, I recall an incident one year when a student had an offer from Oxford. He was a he was quite a working class lad, but he had an offer from Oxford. It was an A. It was three A's. Yeah. That's my phone going off there. Three A's, and he—it's uh, unusual actually, because as by my experience was, Oxford generally offered A star, AA. Yeah. And this was A star was around at the time, so we were very pleased with his grade. And uh, on the results day, he got two A's and a B. Yep. And we appealed the a bit, we appealed the B, but we knew it wasn't m worth much. We thought because it was a middle B, and we said to him, "Look, it's not going to change." He didn't change, and he didn't go to Oxford. Yeah. Well, you know, he carries a story the rest of his life. He might say to people, you know, quite happily, well, I could have gone to Oxford, but didn't. He might, who knows? He's, I'm mm -hmm. sure, I know, I know he's done very well in, with his life, but that, uh, his life went in a different direction. If I'd gone up to him that day and said, well, don't worry, uh, my friend, um, your grades could have been one way either way. That's the way they work. I'm not sure he'd have been pleased or displeased. Um, and I agree with you. Uh, and that's one example. Um, I think the most, um, tragic, if I might use that word, example is in GCSE, where the difference between a three and a four in English language or maths is probably even more damaging um, to students, especially if that three or four, that grade three should have been a four or a five. The, the statement made by 
the chief regulator, grades are reliable to one grade either way. It's on the record. Um, there was no um, qualification of that, so it didn't say grades in this subject or grades in this particular context. It was a blanket statement for all grades. And actually, there's a lot of research that has been done which validates the truth of that statement and the impact of that statement is profound as you have just described but that statement and the implications of that statement are so far unrecognized so a lot of damage is done interesting so i know that there's a looking at your book there's a there's a lot of research you've done a lot of mathematical analysis why why are grades only accurate to one grade either way Okay, reliable to one grade either way, if I may say. Let me just tease into that word. Uh, can I just tease into that word reliable? Because it's absolutely critical. And it goes back to where you started, John. A student opens the envelope or reads the email, whatever it is these days, and sees history grade B. What does that student think? Um, most students will say, oh, you know, oh, great. Or maybe, oh dear, I'd hope for something better, and then deal with the situation. Most people trust the grade to be reliable. That's how the system is based. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, how do you test that? The only way you can test that is with a second opinion, where you have a challenge, you have a remark, and either the B is confirmed or it's changed. So the appeals process and that testing against the second opinion is material. Now, what Ofcall did in a huge research program in the mid-2010s is they took whole cohorts, literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of scripts in many, many subjects, and did exactly what we just described. They marked them twice. Once by an ordinary examiner, so-called, the kind of person that marks scripts. Oh, yes, I've, I've been there. I've You've been that. there. <laughs> and, but, but there's another category of person called a senior examiner. Yeah. And that means that, you know, my script in, you know, A-level history or whatever would have had two marks, one from yourself and one from the subject senior examiner, and those would correspond to two grades. Now, if those two grades are the same, that's fine because different people would end up with the, um, or different examiners would give the same outcome. But sometimes the grade given by the senior examiner is different from the grade given by the ordinary examiner. Mm. Now, that means that the originally awarded grade is an accident of whether or not your script was marked by someone who thinks like the senior examiner or not, that grade is unreliable. And when Ofqual measured this for 14 subjects or so, and they had reports published in 2016 and 2018, they discovered that for a subject like maths, 96% of all scripts would have the same grade, regardless of whether it was marked by a senior examiner or an ordinary examiner. But the remaining 4% of grades had different outcomes, which meant that maths grades are 96% reliable because you've got a 4% chance that you might have got a different grade if yes. your script had been marked by a senior examiner. I, I guess I'd imagine that with maths, that would, that sounds like you should be accurate with maths, shouldn't you? Well, you know, even, you know, four in a hundred being wrong and there are 700,000 GCSE scripts, it's still a very big number. But as you go down the subjects, uh, it changes. So if you take a subject like um, geography, which is a very popular subject, both at GCSE and A-level, 65% of those grades were the same and 35% were different which means that 35% of GCSE and A-level students doing geography would have had a different grade had their script been marked by a senior examiner. And of course, you don't know whether you've been marked by a senior examiner or not. And if you go down to history, for history, about 56% of grades would be the same. And 44%, nearly half, would be different, which means for every GCSE, AS and A-level history candidate, it's almost like tossing a coin on whether you've got the grade you really merit or not. 
Now, if you look at the average overall subject, it comes to about 75% comply with the senior examiner's grade and 25% don't. So on average, about one grade in four is wrong. And that's a more specific measure than the statement made by Ofcall's chief regulator that grades are reliable to one grade either way. That's what that statement really means. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, my, my experience of examining, I did it for about eight years or so, A-level politics with, very, with a couple of exam boards. Mainly I did it to learn how to mark. To be yeah. honest. But what I was really, what I realised I was doing, I was learning how to play the game for my students. Yeah. So that I could tell them, you know, this is what they're looking for. This is what an A-level essay looks like and so on. But I can absolutely recall sitting in an exam room with a dozen examiners and the chief examiner yeah, and, uh, experienced examiner would say, "Well, this isn't a very good essay. This is a, this is this is definitely a, a C." And someone else, "Well, I thought this was rather good," and so on. And immediately we realised it's a highly subjective enterprise, you know, and it was going to depend to some degree on what kind of. And what we were trying to then do was mould our minds into the mind of the chief examiner, and hopefully we would then at least mark like him. Um, which one can try to do, but you know, whenever you have anything which is based on expert judgment from you know olympic diving to you know is this a good or poor piece of art um you get differences of academic opinion and indeed Ofqual know this um i'm looking at a document that they published on the 3rd of june 2016 that's six years ago and let me just read their statement this is Ofqual's own words six years ago there is often no single correct mark for a question in long, extended or essay type questions, it is possible for two examiners to give different but appropriate marks to the same answer. There is nothing wrong or unusual about that. Now that's off call six years ago saying that there's no single right mark, but there's a range of marks which are their words, different but appropriate, which in the context of that particular question or that script are totally legitimate. Mm. Now that then ends up with a mark for a script like either say 64 or maybe 66. Now if both the 64 and the 66 are within the same grade A, that's fine. But if the BA grade boundary is at 65, the legitimate mark 64 is a grade B, the other legitimate mark 66 is grade A. And there's a huge difference between a grade A and a grade B and any other two grades, simply because those two different but appropriate marks happen to be on different sides of a grade boundary. That's the problem. Fascinating. Well, I mean, one of the one of most interesting, many interesting things in your book, one of those interesting things was uh, where you say that the, the grades themselves, I think that were they introduced at Yale or an early American university in, in, in 1700 or something, and grades were introduced as a means of trying to avoid uh, uncertainty. So, yeah. they, so there was, a, if you gave someone a 65 and you gave someone a 66, the 66 would say, well, uh, or the 65 might say, well, where's, where, why, did, why did he get an extra mark? So if you now say, well, you're both top or you're both middle, you're just broadening out the category so you can then be, well, more, more certain, I suppose. That, that you at least would fall within some fuzzy area. The fuzziness is a word you use quite a lot in the book. Yeah, yeah, um, you, you're absolutely right there, uh, John. And um, the word I use for this is that marks are fuzzy. And yes. there's no single right answer. It's not, you know, seven out of 10 is the only possible answer. It might be eight, it might be six. And no one's made any mistakes there. No one's done anything wrong. No one's to blame. So it's not an error. And the word uncertainty makes me a bit nervous. I call it a bit fuzzy. So it's a fuzzy mark, six, seven, or eight. Now, um, you're, you're dead right. At Yale University in 1785, they were wrestling with this problem. And someone came up with the great idea of inventing grades. In fact, what we would now call degree classes, since Yale was a university, of course. Mm. Um, and they decided that rather than trying to, you know, agonise, you know, is it a 64, a 65 or a 66? If everything from, say, you know, 50 through to 70 was, you know, let's call it, you know, a second class degree, say, then it doesn't matter whether it's 64, 65 or 66. We'll all agree on that. Mm. 
So they introduced grades, but they did something else as well. They were wise. They realised that if you've got a script which is marked reasonably close to a grade boundary, it might be subject to this unreliability of is it on the one side or another. So they got together as a team of professors and they looked very carefully at that student's script and took a lot of trouble to say, is it on the higher side or the lower side? So because the grade widths were relatively wide, they didn't have to do that with many, many scripts. So grades are a very good solution to this problem only when two conditions are in place. The grade widths need to be quite wide so that very few straddle the boundary. And when you straddle a boundary, you take a lot of care. Now, regrettably, what has happened with GCSEs, A-levels and ASs is that those precautions have long since gone. Grade widths are narrow, many straddle, and there isn't enough time to be careful about the boundaries. And when I think about this, because GCSEs were for years grades and now they're numbers. Yeah. The, the numbers have made the, the boundaries, uh, the, gray, the, the, the grades narrower. I mean, a nine and eight, a seven and so on. Yeah. So that's actually compounded the problem, hasn't it? It has. Uh, in 2017, when they introduced 987, they made the unreliable unreliability problem even worse. You're right, because the rule was that the old A star A at GCSE, two grades, were split into three, nine, eight, seven. And same for the um, six, five, four, which replaced B and C. So grades got narrower. Therefore, they became more unreliable. And indeed, Ofqual knew that because they say exactly those words in the report they published in 2016. Interesting. Yeah. Because, well, it would have been, you know, in a way, it, they might, it might have been still okay if schools and employers and universities and sixth forms could have said, well, a four is a, a four and a five and a six. What's the difference? Hey, you know, you're in. <laughs> but they don't uh, because initially, I mean, there was a lot of fussing around in the sixth form I was teaching in, whether you could get onto an A-level with a four or whether you could get onto an A-level with a five. And it kind of hardened around the five. And yet I, I knew at the beginning that a four was, well, what was it? Roughly equating to a low C, a high D. Yeah, so, yeah. So now you've narrowed the boundaries, but then, 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 then kind of intensified the significance of this narrower boundary. You really did, or that really happened. Well, that happened because yeah. you know, schools have to make decisions. And Absolutely. They, they, and they'll tend towards the decisions that will mean that the student get onto that A-level is going to do well in the future. So it's a way of filtering out. Well, yeah. Results. Well, you know, the um, the great boundaries are cliff edges. Yes. You know, either you fall over the cliff or you're safe on the top. And um, that's pretty devastating for the students. But you can kind of understand why decision makers, a college, a university, a sixth form, an employer, might use that cliff edge as a way of just filtering through candidates mm-hmm. and saying, you know, if you've got this grade, yes, if you've got that grade, no. And that makes their life you know, somewhat easier. Mm-hmm. But actually, the consequences of that, when you've got this unreliability, are catastrophic. Let me give you just one example. Mm-hmm. Um, our school and a, a gentleman called Roy Blatchford um, have done some really significant thinking around what they call the forgotten third, the policy that means that one third of GCSE English and maths people are destined to fail at that 3-4 boundary. Just a few weeks ago, in August 2022, I estimate that there are about 25,000, that's a modest size football stadium's worth, of GCSE English students were given a certificate with grade three, therefore they have to reset, therefore they're in the forgotten third, therefore their self-confidence is totally destroyed. Mm. But those 25,000 truly merited a four and some cases a five had their scripts been marked by a senior examiner. So there are 25,000 kids out there now doing a reset who shouldn't be there. 
Fascinating, yeah. And, and of course, the, the, the nature of exams uh, and the way that, the way it's conducted, there's a lot of ceremony around it, a lot of ritual, the shushing of people, the handing in of your mobile phones, the, the results day. Yeah. It's going to tend towards an idea that these are highly reliable. And therefore, what, what are you naturally going to do if you fail? You're going to blame yourself. Absolutely. So must be, must be a whole swathe of the population who walk through life thinking, well, I, school proved that I wasn't very good at maths. Well, school proved that I wasn't very good at English. Uh, and in fact, you hear people say that quite a lot. Well, school wasn't for me. Yeah. Say, well, maybe it was. <laughs> maybe it was. Maybe it was. I, I, the, I think, you know, the newspapers around results time tend to focus on uh, A-levels and getting to university. And yes. of course, that is really important. But actually, if you think, or I think that GCSE unreliability, unreliability is actually even more important. Because, mm. you know, you're that much younger, you don't quite have, you know, the maturity of an 18-year-old in many cases. It's the first time you're doing a public exam. You've done exams, of course, at school and you've done mocks, but this is the first time you've been in a national peer group and you get a grade lower than you expected. Now, you're not going to complain. Many people will just trust the system yes. and be disappointed, but actually it's not just disappointment. It might do exactly as you said, give me the feeling I'm no good at this, um, the teachers begin to think I'm no good at this. If I actually get onto the A-level course, um, I set up a self-fulfilling prophecy of failure. Um, and, you know, who knows the damage that that does? Yeah, and of course, with certain GCSEs, maths and English in particular, uh, you're excluded from teaching, you're excluded from certain roles in the civil service, you're excluded from going into the army or the police. There's a whole lot of dashed ambition that might that might result from a grade three, not a grade four, or a grade four, not a grade five. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, if you look at this year, there were um, a total of about six million grades at the three levels um, AAS and GCSE awarded, so-called awarded. About uh, one and a half million of those were wrong without recourse to appeal. One and a half million grades were wrong. Fascinating. Now, we're, we're almost halfway, and I want in the second part to talk more, sure. about, more about some of the possible solutions to this. But I'm going to give you another yeah. um, objection the exam board might come up with. They say, look, they say, there aren't that many appeals. And when there are appeals, and we've answered this, I know, to some degree already, but there aren't when the, the appeals don't often result in changes. So that yeah. proves we're accurate. I mean, it proves we're sort of reliable. Yeah. In the sense that uh, most people who appeal, it confirms the grade they got. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that you say that, John, because um, two days ago, that's on Wednesday, mm -hmm. um, there was a, a meeting of the Education Select Committee. Yes. Um, and appearing on that meeting was the current chief regulator of Ofqual, uh, Dr. Jo Saxton. And she was asked that question, and um, the transcript is not available uh, on the web yet, but you can see this on Parliamentary TV. Um, this is verbatim what the current chief regulator said. Very few grades are changed when marking is reviewed. This is a key piece of evidence that exam grades are right. So Dr. Joe Saxton, current chief regulator, is saying because so few grades are changed in appeal, that is evidence that you can really trust the grades. L let me give you some real numbers. Um, the numbers from 2022 aren't available yet. And of course, 2020 and 2021 were different. But if you go back to 2019, these are some real numbers from 2019. Um, there were, once again, about 6 million awards and about 350,000 of those awards were challenged. And there were about um, 70,000 grade changes. So 70,000 grade changes were made on 6 million awards, which is about 1% of awards were changed on appeal. That's the number that is being quoted very few. About 1% of grades are changed on appeal. Right. The problem is this. There were only 350,000 challenges, and that meant there were over 5.5 million grades that were not challenged. 
No one knows whether or not those would have been changed had an appeal been made because no one has looked. You might remember, and listeners to this uh, might remember, that there was a statement made by Donald Trump about COVID testing. He said, if we didn't do any testing, we'd have very few cases. And everyone laughed. If you don't look, you don't find. It's the same thing. What, of course, research did, the research that I mentioned, uh, which was reported in 2016 and 2018, is they looked at the entire population, the whole cohort. And they discovered that, in fact, 25% of grades would be changed. So to claim that only 1% of grades are changed on appeal is very, very poor thinking, I'm afraid. Fascinating. That's a good moment, Dennis, to take a short break. We're going to listen to a message from the sponsor and some teacherly news. I'll join you in a few minutes, Dennis. Thank you, John. teamed up with the Witherslack Group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free with lunch included and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for Your Voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash Your Voice 2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators rewriting well-being it's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition movement mindset workload and well-being in school you'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including andrew cowley jen foster kimberly wilson simon bolger and many more there'll be talks workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues we'll look after you all day with brunch lunch and all the refreshments You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The TES magazine focuses on fears of a teacher trainee shortage as a report reveals ITT cold spots. The report in the magazine says the Department for Education in England has been warned that it must urgently tackle teacher training cold spots as analysis reveals recruitment issues across England. The analysis suggests that multiple regions in England face losing swathes of places on courses after a government shake-up cut initial teacher training provided numbers by a quarter. Recent results of the second and final rounds of the DfE's re-accreditation process showed that around 25% of existing providers could be lost. The teacher training sector is now calling for a pragmatic and realistic approach to ensuring trainees can access courses in all parts of the country. This comes at a time when the number of teachers entering the profession is falling. The North East is facing the sharpest potential loss as 32% of trainee places available last year are under threat. The East and South West regions also face significant cuts of around 24%. The report acknowledges that some new providers have received approval to start offering courses from 2024, but others within the sector are concerned that this will not fully resolve the issues. Providers have 15 days to lodge an application to appeal loss of accreditation. Teams of the UK's most talented young tradespeople are to begin competing in the World Skills Competition 2022. 
The competition traditionally held in just one country is, this year, taking in smaller events across the world. The event, which sees a UK team of 35 travel around the globe, begins in Stuttgart, Germany on the 4th of October and will end on November the 26th in Salzburg, Austria. The UK team will be looking to improve on a 12th place finish at the 2019 event. FE Week features details of the competitors and their areas of specialism, which include tool making, milling, web development and cybersecurity. Winners for each category will be announced during closing ceremonies for each competition, with medals given to those achieving gold, silver or bronze. Medals of excellence will be given to those judged to have reached world-class standard in their skill. In Wales, First Minister Mark Drakeford has taken part in an online Q&A session with school pupils. The session, hosted by the Politics Project, gives opportunities for schools to support learners in realising one of the four purposes of the Curriculum for Wales, becoming ethical, informed citizens of Wales and the world. Questions range from finding out about the politician's journey into politics, climate change and whether Wales can indeed win the World Cup. And finally, in South Africa, the government has issued a press release focusing on the recruitment of 25,000 education assistants and general school assistants for both public and special schools. The recruitment drive is part of the Presidential Youth Employment Initiative. Education assistants will support teachers with administrative tasks, classroom management, sports coaching and cultural activities, whilst the general assistants will focus on maintenance, cleaning and general admin. The programme is part of a drive to improve standards within schools in the country, as well as increasing employment opportunities. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week is World Space Week. Space is such a vast topic, there's always something you can find out that could potentially be a hook for a lesson. The theme this year is sustainability. I only found out about Space Week as I was browsing the internet. This got me thinking about how amazing the internet is and how so much information is at our fingertips. This week, I'm going to look at finding inspiration for a lesson using information I would never have known about without the amazing technology of the internet. During my research, I've discovered that there are a number of websites out there dedicated to awareness days. I've compiled a list of genuine official awareness days to motivate your form, classes, colleagues or even yourself from now until the end of term. In October we have Buy British Day, National Poetry Day, National Kale Day, World Octopus Day and World Porridge Day. This one sounds funny but it's actually to raise awareness for children in poverty in developing countries. Local Radio Day. To celebrate this our very own Tom Rogers is going to stop talking every time he goes under a bridge. Still in October we have National Roast Pheasant Day, UK Coffee Week, Apple Day, Global Champagne Day, International Stammering Awareness Day. World Tripe Day, National Pumpkin Day, American Beer Day, National Black Cat Day and Wild Foods Day. There's not much information on Wild Foods Day, but if you do go all bear grills, please do let us know how it went. Ending October, we have RSPB Feed the Birds Day. Please feed the birds more than just one day. In November, there's World Vegan Day, National Stress Awareness Day, Roast Dinner Day, International Stout Day and National Hugger Bear Day. I'd advise against hugging a real bear, however, it would make a very engaging lesson. Great British Game Week, British Pudding Day, Templiano Day and Zinfandel Day are followed by Homemade Bread Day. I think this is here to soak up all the wine. Still staying in November, there's National Gingerbread Day, National Eater Cranberry Day, The Fruit, not a band member. The end of November brings us White Ribbon Day. Days of interest in December before we break up are Fuel Poverty Awareness Day, Christmas Jumper Day and National Hot Chocolate Day. The internet is an amazing resource for information. I hope you can find inspiration and motivation in your next search. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And you're back with me, John Gibbs, with the Friday morning break. And my guest this morning is Dennis Sherwood, author of Missing the Mark. And we're just having a most fascinating discussion about his contention that so many exam grade results are actually uh, wrong. Well, Dennis, I, I do want to leave time uh, to talk about some alternative ways of uh, using it, uh, of examining students and maybe how we can fix the system. But I just want to briefly look at the what we might call the great algorithm fiasco. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I'm, well, that was my last year of teaching. So I, I was finishing in my final year and um, we were submitting as essentially students were being assessed by teachers and this, this was being submitted to an algorithm. Uh, it, it did turn into it. I think fiasco is not, not a strong word, is it? Uh, fiasco is um, a, a, a pretty light word, given the incredible uh, damage uh, that it caused. Um, and uh, it, it really, really was a disastrous experience for absolutely everyone. Of course, the students were the uh, ultimate victims of this, um, but teachers had a terrible process that they were obliged to undertake. And of course, a lot of politicians and civil servants uh, got dragged through it as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and it, it was one of those moments when I think that a lot of people sort of clapped their hands on their heads and said, my goodness, exams are unfair. There's an advantage to private school students and the middle class students and students with a good, schools with good record. And, and well, well, or no, we're not going to talk about that today in a sense, but there is an unfairness in exams generally. But what we're talking about with you, Dennis, is how we can at least mark them so we can say, well, Whatever the game we're playing is, it's a fair game. It's yeah. uh, it's it's reliable. I know what I got, and and I can't think that it was well wrong. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, there is much that we could talk about, and I'm sure you will talk about and have talked about about reform of the education system overall, the curriculum. Should we have GCSEs at all? Um, yeah. How is assessment best done? But whilst exams are there and they are at the end of the course and they exist as we know them, the least we should expect is that the outcome, that's the grade on the certificate, is reliable and trustworthy. And what that means is that if I were to appeal that grade, I would have the originally awarded grade confirmed, not changed, with a very, very high probability, 99.999%. There will always be one or two errors. But at the moment, it's 75-25. Um, how do we achieve that? Well, actually, um, there are lots of different possibilities. Some are, in my opinion, are rather weak. Um, some are a lot better, and they're all very straightforward. Let's let's deal with one. When I, when I was in the United States, I taught. Uh, I, I did a gap from the gap year, an exchange year in the United States, and the schools essentially. Well, I've described that system. It was twenty years ago, but they used teacher assessment and lots of multiple choice tests. Yeah, I mean, a multiple choice test is pretty accurate. Yeah, I mean, a, a multiple choice test is designed to solve the problem of different teachers legitimately giving different marks. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's a rather more sophisticated um, who wants to be a millionaire, if you like, where there's one and only right, right answer and either you get it or you don't. And I think a lot of people are trying to uh, develop multiple choice tests that actually, you know, cater for an A-level history essay sensibly. Um, I think personally that that's the wrong way to go, but it does address the problem of ironing out the differences of academic opinion. And um, when you supplement that with teacher assessment, the teacher has interacted with the student over months or years. I think that teacher assessment should play a much greater role in the way in which the outcome for any student is determined. Um, but right at the moment, teacher assessment is out, exams are in, and exams at the moment are essay-based. And essay-based exams suffer from fuzziness and we are where we are. Um, the fundamental problem is this problem of different examiners having different opinions, legitimately different opinions. So the way out way of dealing with that is to use an artificial intelligence system. So in principle, there's only one examiner. And people are working on that right now. But to my mind, you know, that's, um, you know, way into the future. But in principle, that would solve the problem. Wasn't wasn't that what the algorithm was you know, supposed to do? No, no, the, the algorithm wasn't actually marking the uh, scripts. Oh, the, the algorithm was just using historic patterns to say that, you know, any given school in the past 10% of candidates, you know, got grade whatever. Therefore, this year, only 10% of candidates will get whatever. So they were using just a numbers game based on history to say how many grades should each school 
be Russianed with, nothing to do with the students' performance at all, a disaster. So artificial intelligence is actually using some kind of criteria where, uh, where, where you can look for certainty within the actual marking. Yeah, I, I, basically, um, one of the problems is that you've got 700,000 GCSE English scripts. So you have to use a lot of examiners, um, and they will have different opinions. Mm. If you could have one examiner who could slog through 700,000, and if that, if that examiner could, was consistent, the problem would go away. Now, in principle, artificial intelligence is supposed to be able to read a history essay and do that. And, you know, that will happen in due course, but maybe that's 50 years out. Why wait 50 years? There are other solutions. And another, I think an idea, another idea you had in the book was to broaden the um, grade boundaries and mark everything that's on the edge. Yes, that. exactly. That's back to the, you know, the, the Yale concept of 1785. Do we really need, you know, 10 GCSE grades? You know, imagine a world where it was pass, fail, or maybe merit, pass and fail. Um, if we want to use the word fail, we can deal with that. But then you need to be very, very wise and very, very careful at people who straddle boundaries. Um, that, in principle, can be done. And of course, as we discussed earlier, that's why grades are invented. I'd like to think that at universities, that's exactly what they do. Yes, hopefully. I mean, I, it, I suspect if there's an A-level student listening um, or anyone who's a teacher of A-levels or GCSEs and they don't have experience of examining, you'd think that's what would happen, that anything that's a bit on the edge gets a double look. But of course it doesn't, as you say, because that the man hours wouldn't don't allow that. Well, these the man hours, as they are committed at the moment, don't allow that. So so yeah. with, I suppose the exam boards are going to say, well, that's going to take an awful lot of time. We've got thousands and thousands of scripts to get through. Yeah, and so it's, it's not a practical solution, although in principle, it is one that would work. And as I say, at universities, you'd like to think that people on the first, second, 2122 and 223 boundaries are looked at as carefully as we're talking about. Yeah, how about altering the mark scheme itself? So the mark scheme is more defined. Okay. And that's, uh, once again, another possibility. The narrower and tighter the mark scheme, the less discretion any individual examiner has. I call that uh, multiple choice by stealth. Because what, what, what that's doing is it's saying there's, you know, there is a really a right answer for this essay, which means it must have these key words and these key phrases. And of course, that then has the so-called unintended consequence that teachers notice that so they teach to the test so they train the kids to say you must write down this phrase in every essay or whatever and to my mind that totally destroys what education is supposed to be about education is about developing the kid not telling them how they can get high marks in a test well again we could easily stray off the subject of the uh, marking process and onto something i experienced over this which is teaching to the test and it's a it's a, it seems to be a sort of tail wagging the dog consequence of any assessment system that teachers are very quick and students are very quick and publishers are very quick to yeah. find the little wrinkles and ways of answering and mention these phrases and make sure you and uh, I, you know I, I would say i don't think it's unfair to say that if i look at a GCSE and any GCSE English teacher. I taught GCSE English as well for a, year, a number of years. And if you're a GCSE English teacher, and that that it, it can it can you can lose a lot of the joy of literature by teaching how to how to write exams about literature. In other words, there there are key words and key phrases and things to you know exactly as you said it. I, I, I'm with you, John, and I'm sure many of uh, the people listening to uh, the, the, this uh, are thinking that as well. So where do we go, Dennis? What, what, what would be your favoured solution? Okay, um, there's a portfolio of solutions, but all yes. of them recognise that this concept of fuzziness is real, rather than trying to pretend it's not there. Um, and actually, it's very, very easy to fix. What happens right now is that the exam is given a mark, let's call it 64. Mm. 64 is ultimately mapped onto a grade scale, let's call that grade B. If you were allowed a remark, which you're not, and that remark was 66, that might map onto grade A, and you've got the unreliability problem. Mm. So how do we handle that? We need to do two things. 
we need to recognize that that 66 is fuzzy. It's 66, maybe up to 69 and maybe as low as 63. So call it 63 plus or minus 3 or 63 to 69. That's the first thing. And the second thing is we've got to recognize that there's an appeals process which needs to confirm, not change. So anyway, here is one way, and this is in fact my preferred way, but there are others. The truth is that the mark is not 64. It's 64 plus or minus a bit. And the plus or minus a bit depends on the subject. It's a small bit for maths, it's a medium bit for geography, and it's a big bit for history. Mm -hmm. So let's say it's 64 plus or minus 4. That's the truth. So why not throw grades away and just have on the certificate, Dennis Sherwood, geography, 64 marks in brackets, plus or minus four or four either way. So that signals that it's any number which is 64 or up to 64 plus four, 68, or 64 minus four, 60. What that means is that if, in fact, I am compared with a student who got 66 plus or minus four, there's such a much, there's so much overlap that there's no really, not really a distinction. Whereas in the past, that grade boundary would say, I'm bad, the other kid is good. So we need to do something else as well. We need to actually change the appeals rule. Let's suppose that that script 64 plus or minus 4 is remarked 66. Now, in the old days, that would have been a change from grade B to grade A. But this time, it confirms the original assessment 64 plus or minus four. And that's because 66 is within that range. We expect a mark to be, or a remark to be different. So that 64 plus or minus four gives us the range in which we expect any remark by a qualified examiner to be. And because it's within that range, that confirms the original assessment, which is so why saying, that's so reliable. You're saying, so you're saying to a student, you, are, you can reliably be satisfied that you're within this range exactly and if you appeal it'll, that'll only confirm that yeah <laughs> if it turns out that something has gone wrong and actually the remark is say 72 then we start again but if in fact marking is done to high quality which it is marking is really really good mm. and if in fact you measure that fuzziness statistically reliably which is really easy won't go into that then you know 99.999 percent of challenges will confirm the original mark we can trust it mm. and that also means that you don't have these cliff edges where 64 good or 64 bad 66 good there's no real difference between 64 plus or minus 4 and 66 plus or minus 4. An employer or a college needs to look a bit harder at our candidates if there is competition between us. Do we, does that rely on a subtle and intelligent reading of the, gray, of the result? That I am not, I'm not always convinced that universities are that subtle or intelligent, to be honest. They should be, of course. They should be highly intelligent. But I think that universities, and I don't know about employers so much, but I think there is a tendency for human beings, as I said earlier, to just draw a line and say, well, um, the boundary, you're in, this, you're in this zone, but we are going to impose on it afterwards a kind of arbitrary line in which we don't want you. It's a bit like the 4-5 grade. I mean, a four, if, a, if a 4 was a lowish C to top D, and a five was a good secure C, possibly even a B, then you should have thought well, that schools would say, well, you needed four or five, but they, they, didn't, they came down on the side of five. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right um, that, you know, people who are having to make decisions about, you know, college entrance or an employer is looking for kind of rules of thumb um, yeah. to make their life easier. They've got a whole stack of candidates, you know, how do we distinguish? Now, having cliff edge grade boundaries makes their life easier in that respect. It's just unfair to the kids. This means that actually people have to be a bit more thoughtful, a bit more wise. And there are still divisions in there. If I'm 64 plus or minus four, I am weaker than someone who is 80 plus or minus four because the difference across there is significant. Hmm. 
are not different from 66 plus or minus four. So that just means that employers, universities, colleges need to look a bit harder. And of course, there's a strong trend towards this already. Um, universities, for example, are talking a lot now about contextual admissions, taking context into account. Let's do that. To my mind, the purpose of examinations is not to make an employer's life easier or a university admissions life easier by enable them to sort of sort things quickly. It's actually to recognise the achievement of the student. Absolutely, yes. I, you know, well, before, well, the two things I want to fin say before we finish. One is that, um, well, yeah, the, the one is I, we, took, we talked earlier in the week, and schools are very old-fashioned sort of places. Uh, I, you mentioned something about uh, an observation by a was it um, an observation by a Victorian about schools. I just think it's very illuminating to think that we're still we're still putting people through exams and and testing and and if someone I said in my very first broadcast if someone was brought a time machine from the Victorian times to the future yeah they'd be baffled in many ways but they wouldn't be so surprised with the way schools are organised yeah absolutely um, you mentioned 1785 as being when grades were invented well in 1888 a statistician called Edgeworth um, thought a lot about marking and fuzziness and all of those things he wrote a wonderful document and if you read that document it says that things like you know examinations are not perfect we all know this he wrote that in 1888 and obviously the context of a school with a teacher at the front and desks and all of that stuff um you know if you know uh, charles dickens walked into a schoolroom today he'd recognize it let alone shakespeare Absolutely. I know this is a bit outside the remit of your book, but I've just said, what would happen to a world if students left school with very few uh, assessments, maybe assessment in something like literacy, an assessment in or an enumeracy, and the rest was teacher assessed, a, a, a statement of their attendance and their demeanour. Right. The sky, the sky wouldn't fall, would it? I mean, we, you know, employers would adapt, universities would adapt. Um, you ask, you know, what would the world look like? Um, my immediate answer is a better place. Um, there are all sorts of um, think tanks and, you know, uh, pressure groups thinking about different ways of developing young people from, you know, age five or seven, you know, through to 18. And we need to encourage them to learn, to rejoice in understanding and to recognize their achievement. Mm -hmm. Having these exams, you know, with such um, dramatic consequences imposed on them is not the best way to develop young people. So the world will be a better place. I, I believe I believe that that must that must surely be true. I was talking to someone the other day about how many people have a dream where they're on stage and they can't remember the lines or they're walking in public without their trousers. But there's another common dream to many people in Britain. It's being in the exam room and you haven't studied. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> exam, yeah, yeah. Exams kind of haunt us. Yeah. It's a rather terrifying part of our young lives. And yeah. I think, I think it's a shame to do that to young people. Absolutely. And of course, there are many examples around the world of other nations that do things significantly differently. And I would say better. Can we, can we end on one? Where, where would you? Uh, well, I would go for many of the Scandinavian countries, Denmark and Finland. Um, school starts at seven uh, in uh, countries like that. And um, the kind of A-level equivalent, a lot of that is done on teacher assessment. A lot of that is done in um, vivas. Um, I've always thought that a viva exam is actually much better in many ways than a written exam because you can engage in a dialogue with the examiner and the examiner can probe a bit and you can explain again. There's lots of different ways of doing things. Scandinavia is a pretty good example. Brilliant. Often it seems to be that it is, isn't it? <laughs> it's the oh. Scandinavians, those clever Scandinavians. And it's, it's been absolutely yeah. delightful to talk to you and, and, uh, and a thoroughly interesting um, read, your book, the missing missing the mark it says a lot of provocative stuff it's really a question we should simply i believe be asking this question john uh, thank you too and thank you uh, listeners thank you bye then bye then
Well, you've been listening to the uh, morning break with John Gibbs and my guest this week was Dennis Sherwood. If you wish to find this again, of course, it's a podcast now, so it'll be published on the site. So listen to our discussion. You can always in the future check in with questions. We didn't get any questions today, but we had quite a few listeners. I can see by the list. You will be able to follow this up. You will be able to listen to it again. Enjoy it as I enjoyed that talk with Dennis Sherwood. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.